Welcome to Humanly Possible, a vlog and podcast series focused on the game-changing potential of creating human-centric workplaces. On this episode, we're joined by Dr. Lindsay Malloy and Dr. Amanda Zelahusky, two psychologists, moms, scholars, and researchers. Together, Lindsay and Amanda co-founded Pandemic Parenting, a nonprofit organization and community for parents and caregivers to easily access resources and valuable research to help navigate the unique challenges of the COVID-19 pandemic. We unpack Lindsay and Amanda's personal experiences and discuss their evolving research on the impact of the pandemic on other families. We also discuss the role of employers and leaders to incorporate flexible and equitable workplace design for working parents and caregivers. the Humanly Possible. I want to uh, introduce our guests today. I'm excited that we have two uh, brilliant guests to have a great lively discussion. We have Dr. Amanda Zelahusky and Dr. Lindsay Malloy, and both are co-founders of uh, a nonprofit called Pandemic Parenting. And so I'm really excited to have this discussion because there's such a need right now to have conversations around supporting parents in the workplace. So uh, Amanda, I'll let you um, start with your introduction first. Sure, thank you for having us, Angela. We're really excited to be here to talk with you today. Um, so I am an associate professor of psychology at Valparaiso University, which is in Northwest Indiana and am trained as a clinical and forensic psychologist and attorney. And my research tends to focus primarily on um, child trauma and just how trauma then intersects with the criminal justice system and in various forensic settings. And so I spend a lot of time thinking about early adverse experiences and how those go on to impact our lives in different ways. And I'm Lindsay Malloy, and I'm an associate professor of psychology at Ontario Tech University, which is in the suburbs of Toronto. Um, and my research focuses on children's involvement in the legal system, broadly speaking. So looking at children's memory, um, their life narratives, how they talk about the past, essentially. And a lot of that has to do with how they talk about past negative experiences, traumatic ones, um, maltreatment, or uh, potentially illegal behavior in the case of, of um, juvenile delinquency and thinking about how interviewers can best get accurate detailed reports from kids when we suspect that something has happened to them. Um, so that's where my research is focused. And, you know, I obviously engage in all sorts of other um, teaching and uh, service related stuff. And, and then in August of 2020, launched this, co-launched this nonprofit with Amanda, um, which was not something we really had in our plans at all. And, um, but we've been really excited about how it's going and, and the chance to connect with a lot of, of uh, parents and get some, some good research into their hands. So Lindsay, can you tell us a little bit more about Pandemic Parenting, why you decided to start it along with Amanda and uh, what you've been learning along the way since the launch? Yeah, absolutely. So one thing that's a bit odd is that Amanda and I have never met in person. So this is the sort of classic like pandemic relationship where, uh, that has <laughs> developed. Um, 
And so we, we knew of each other's work um, through the American Psychology Law Society, where we're both members, um, and we had sort of interacted on Twitter, um, so that social media presence. And then Amanda contacted me in July saying, I kind of, you know, have this idea, like I want to run by you about how we can uh, essentially how we can get good information into uh, the hands of parents, because we were both conducting studies on the impact of COVID-19 and the pandemic on children and families. So we were both sort of independently doing those studies with our research labs. And, um, you know, Amanda was talking about, rightly so, that a lot of times this, this research science, it takes a really long time. And, you know, to get it published, to get it out there, and then even if it does get published, which can take, you know, a year or six years for some of us or whatever, what have you, <laughs> like, then, you know, it's not really accessible to a lot of people, like literally because there's paywalls and such, or figuratively because it's just written for a different audience. And so we wanted to try to distill some of that information from our own studies and, and think like they need this right now. Parents and families need this right now. So let's try to get that into their hands, but also just general psychological concepts and theories and, and findings and what, what is known about you know, parenting and children's reactions to disasters. Like we know a lot of stuff that parents could use right now. So it was trying to get that to them in a way that was free and, um, and, you know, not like a lot of stats, just, you know, jargon free delivery of that. Is that yeah, and, and in a way that is right, accessible. But I think for us too, it was also in a way that is relatable. You know, so Lindsay and I both didn't mention, but we're both also pandemic parents ourselves right now, right? So I have three young boys, uh, 11, eight, and five. Lindsay has two kids, five and three. And so we were in the thick of it ourselves, you know, struggling right along with all of these other pandemic parents all over the world. But recognizing, you know, as you said, Lindsay, that we sometimes have access to information or aspects of our training around some of these psychological concepts that could be helpful to people that we just, we take for granted sometimes and forget how hard it is actually for a lot of people to access psychology. And that's a problem, that's a big problem. And so, you know, we just sort of realized what is the support that we could use right now and mm -hmm. thinking that through, and maybe there's a way we can take what we've learned from the research and translate and disseminate that in really engaging and helpful ways, but in real time, like quickly, because people mm -hmm. need answers now and they don't have time to read the 300 page books on each of these topics. So how can we get this stuff to them right away in a way that would be helpful to us as struggling working parents mm -hmm. too? And we're lucky that our networks of other colleagues around the world, right? So, you know, we have our own narrow expertise, but then we also are like, okay, well, my old friend and colleague is an expert in children's, um, you know, in screen time. So let's call him up and call in a favor and see if he'll come out and talk about screen time with us. And so just having those networks allows us to kind of pull in people who who have the expertise that a lot of parents need. And so, and we're right there, like taking notes too, right? Like we had one on managing sibling conflict recently. And, you know, that was something that was of great interest oh to Amanda yes. and I. <laughs> yes. <laughs> During a Absolutely. pandemic and while, you know, families are cooped up with each other, that's like another layer of, of the expertise, right? Exactly. Yes. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. And I love the fact that I love what you said around making it accessible and, Kind of this idea of let's, you know, I think with research and academia, we are oftentimes um, behind the scenes, 
doing quantitative and qualitative research and then waiting for perfect to happen before releasing results or sharing results. And so it sounds like you've talked with researchers, but from what I've read and done my own research on, you've also talked to actual parents and worked in the community. And so who are you talking to other than experts and what does that process look like? Yeah, I, I think we've been trying to do a lot of, of outreach, get feedback from folks, you know, what is helpful to you? What are the ways you want this information? We're constantly evolving as an organization and figuring out, you know, most people don't have time to sit through a one hour webinar. You know, we've tried to really cater to the to parents. And so we intentionally do them later, you know, at 9 p.m. on, you know, most of the time, because we don't want it to be in the middle of your workday if you work traditional hours or in the middle of dinner and bedtime chaos, which we know all too well what that's like. And so, you know, we've tried to make things really accessible for people's lifestyles right now in the way we're living through the pandemic. Um, but we also realize, okay, there are other ways to do this. So we'll take these, you know, one hour webinars and convert them into these one to two minute snack break videos because we don't have time. We want a quick answer and we want to get an answer to something from an expert, you know, in a one minute video, that's easier for me to digest than reading a really long article or newsletter. Um, we partnered with Zulily to create these blogs in really accessible ways and, you know, translate a lot of the psychological concepts into really sort of fun, you know, ways of talking about it. And, and Lindsay and I have had a blast with that because it's not the traditional academic writing we're used to doing. It's so accessible. It's here's examples from my family and here's what worked and here's what absolutely didn't work and here's why. And here's the psychological concepts that might explain why that didn't work. Um, so we've been able to use some of those concepts from the psychological science, but in ways that we think are easier for people to, you know, hear and learn. So lots of outreach, talking with, parent groups, um, teachers, school groups, you know, just lots of community organizations trying to keep figuring out what is the best way we can be helpful to give this information away. Talking with media as well, which is something that I find very challenging, but it, you know, we've done like stuff on TV, like live TV segments. And, you know, then you really have like 30 seconds to boil it down to you know, what is the biggest take home message for parents about this topic or in this kind of situation, like around the holidays, that was a big, a big one, right? Like, how do we make the holidays special for our kids? And how is how to best cope with this? And so, yeah, we've been talking to parents, journalists, podcast hosts, like wherever we can get, you know, more people informed and, and the information out there that we kind of exist and that we have these resources that are free and, you know, they're, they're credible experts who are coming on. So, I mean, there's no shortage of information out there about parenting. Like any parent knows that, you, you know, you only have to go on social media um, and you'll get advice from strangers or this blog <laughs> or this blog. And it's like, but, but how do I find out the I don't want to say the correct, but, you know, a lot of people want to find out the information that is informed by research or by science, by people who've spent their whole lives dedicated to these different issues. And so that's what we're really trying to get to people. So let's talk about that research, because I am really curious to, to understand and know the impact, and I'm sure um, the listeners are, on what the impact of the pandemic has had on parenting. And so talking, thinking about um, uh, not just parenting as a whole, but also mental health of the children and the parents. So maybe starting with you, Amanda, if you could 
um, kind of distill down some of the findings that that, that you and Lindsay are um, are seeing and, and and the trends we're seeing during this time and, and what's changing as we're getting to this different phase in the pandemic. Yeah. So the study that I did very early on in the pandemic was really looking at what is the short-term impact, you know, from the interesting thing about COVID-19 and the way that it sort of began is that for those of us who study a lot of these crises and traumatic incidents, we don't know that they're coming, right? So this was, we're always studying after the fact, 9-11, Hurricane Katrina, you know, we're able to study what the impact is afterwards, <coughs> excuse me, but with the pandemic, I mean, we kind of had a heads up that this was coming, depending on how seriously you took, you know, various commentators about that or researchers. And so knowing that we were in this unique position to be able to actually collect baseline data. How are people doing before it happened? Um, and then look at what the aftermath looked like. And that's pretty rare for those of us who study, you know, crises and trauma. And so, you know, that was something that was really interesting to me was I, I this is going to get really bad. You know, Lindsay and I study child maltreatment and this is a recipe for disaster related to child maltreatment because you're going to have kids that aren't in school. You're going to have extremely stressed parents and people are going to be isolated and we're not going to have teachers and a lot of the other you know, grownups and kids' lives having their kind of eyes and ears out there to protect kids. So child maltreatment rates are going to go up. Um, but the challenge is we're not going to have reporting the way that we usually do. And so I was really worried about that. And that was why I wanted to study. And I was really worried about how the heck am I going to manage this as a working mom? Like this is going to get really bad in my house too. And so, you know, studied that and we followed about 450 families over several, the first few months of the pandemic. And what we learned is that, you know, parents were really struggling, kids were really struggling. The challenges um, for parents of younger kids, so school age, you know, like infant, toddler, all the way up through say middle school were very different. Um, the stressors were different than parents of older kids. So parents with younger kids seem to be struggling more in part because of, you know, of course, the supervision and management that you need with younger kids than you do with older kids. So the stress looked different when your kids were younger, like the ages of Lindsay's and my kids, than if you had high schoolers or you had college students who abruptly had to come home. The, a couple other things we learned were that younger kids seem to have more um, what we call externalizing problems. So things like aggression, disruptive behavior, tantrums, you know, that was how they were struggling from a mental health perspective and, and acting out. Older kids like middle school and high schoolers had more internalizing problems that emerged in those three months. So withdrawal, isolation, you know, symptoms of depression, those kinds of things. And so the mental health issues looked different depending on the ages of the kids. We had about one in four kids that the parents rated as showing an increase in these emotional and behavioral issues over just the first three months of the pandemic. So that's really striking and tells us, you know, hey, if that's what we saw in the first couple of months, what is this going to look like a year later for many of uh, our families and our parents? Um, and then the other sort of big finding for us was that you know, parents who had kids with special needs, of course, were struggling a lot more and their stress really was, um, exacerbated in, in many different ways because of how much they were having to manage at home without the resources and supports they were used to having. So those were some of the big takeaways for us. And again, like I said, we only looked at the first few months. And so some of the trends we're seeing in other people's research in a number of the articles that have been written are that around the six month mark, people actually started faring worse 
from a mental health standpoint, that they were okay and sort of, you know, resilient. And maybe we'll talk about resilience, but, you know, we're able to sort of hold it together and manage this in the beginning. But around that six month point, when we saw this isn't going away anytime soon, that's where we started to see things like suicide rates increase and mental health really suffer for parents and kids. Lindsay, what about you? Your study talked about some really cool things, like how to talk to your kids about this stuff. Yes. So I don't have as many findings as Amanda at this point, um, but um, I can say that we, so we collected data from um, just under 2000 families in the US and Canada um, and, you know, wide age range of kids. um, And our big focus was on how parents were talking to their kids about COVID-19. Um, so one thing I can say is that there's, you know, huge range of like individual differences in how families are communicating about this, right? Like you have some that are very actively communicating uh, about it. And in past research, like when you're talking about hurricanes or, you know, the Boston Marathon bombing, that style is associated with children faring better. Um And then you have families who are more in the kind of avoidant communication style. Like they're not talking about it. They're not, they're asking other people not to talk to their kids about it. They're, you know, not explaining what's happening in the news and things like that. Um, And that's associated with, with poorer outcomes for kids and other kinds of disasters. So, but what's interesting is that, you know, we've never, like Amanda said, we didn't, this is a different, a whole different ball game because yes, we did know it was coming, but also it's stretching on for so long. Like most other tragedies or disasters that have been studied are like one-time events. Um, And this is ongoing, you know, we're about to hit a year since, you know, things really shut down in North America. So um, yeah, so we've done like, you know, early on, then we did a six month follow-up that we're still analyzing. Um, So it'll be interesting to see, but, you know, in addition to the things that Amanda mentioned, um, a lot of sleep challenges for parents and kids, especially as people are like stuck at home, their routines are all disrupted and that disrupts our sleep. And of course, sleep ends up affecting so many other aspects of our mental health, like depression and it can affect suicide and, and, and things like that. So that's something um, to think about. And also boredom, like when we, this first started, we were really concerned about anxiety and like, you know, that's what has been studied a lot with other disasters, anxiety, PTSD. Um, but a lot of what a lot of parents and kids seem to be experiencing is just like this, this listlessness, you know, just this boredom and like, um, loneliness. And so, yeah, there are different things at work here that I think we're not going to fully understand for, for quite some time, but we are, we are trying to. Yeah, and um, so I appreciate you both sharing that research because um, really the connection I wanted to make and, and the discussion that um, you know we can kind of end with here is around how leaders, executives, workplaces can support parents during this time. And I think it's kind of spilling over into generally, right? Like let's <laughs> let's understand the parents' experience not only through a pandemic, but how that contributes to the work human that's coming to work every day and how we can't ignore um, the fact that being a parent is a part of your being and a part of you and the person you bring to work. So some of the things that, um, just to add to some of the research around uh, uh, your piece here is around um, the workplace and human-centric workplaces. And, And what I've been finding is Parents are saying, give us more resources. 
um, which is you know exactly what pandemic parenting is doing. But really what I've found, what I've distilled this down to is flexibility. Um, provide us with the grace and the flexibility to manage our work. <laughs> um, give us choice. And I think that include that's especially true for parents who are going through a pandemic, but provide us with outcomes-based leadership so that we can get the work done in a way that works for us. How does that um, speak to you, Lindsay? And, and what are some other things that workplaces can be doing to support parents during the pandemic? Yeah, so many thoughts. So, so first, I think parents, um, for sure, but just really anybody with caregiving responsibilities, right? Because a lot of people are in a position right now that even if they aren't parents, they're having to really take care of their parents right now, or they're the ones who are trying to get their parents vaccines and like spending all day on an online platform trying to do that. And, and a lot of people like the sandwich generation, right? Like they have young kids and they're um, taking care of their parents. So just something to keep in mind. And I think this pandemic has really highlighted like all the stuff that a lot of working parents have been dealing with, all these challenges have been always there to a certain extent, but the pandemic has really like, it's kept us from hiding them as much, right? Like it, you know, I might have a, a phone call or something to one of my kids' schools, but it's different when like my kid comes walking into the middle of a meeting with like the vice president of research or whatever. It's just much harder to, to hide um, than it was before. So I think it's really brought to the forefront um, a lot of issues for parents. Um, so in a sense, I think it's good. These things are more visible. Um, so what can workplaces do? I think just, first of all, just acknowledging the challenges. Um, I mean, I'm sort of surprised um, the, uh, that, you know, there's a lack of acknowledgement in, in a lot of situations about the, the challenges that parents are facing. Um, so I remember one time my daughter came walking into a meeting and, you know, right away, one of the really like high up admin people was like, oh, looks like we have, you know, a little visitor and was like really pleasant about it. And that was really nice. Um, now I know some people might feel like, oh, why did they highlight that? I don't want, you know, so I know there can be individual differences there, but for me, it was really nice to have, you know, them sort of acknowledge her presence there. Um, and um, I think just thinking, thinking through what the challenges might be or talking to parents about what they are, because, you know, frankly, a lot of whether it's a university or um, you know a Fortune 500 company, a lot of the decision makers are older men, like who may not have young children, um, or they had them 25 years ago and they just forgot because of retrospective memory biases, right? Like we don't remember how how things were and how challenging it was, and so they might not be thinking about about that. So, yeah, so getting parents involved in the decisions. Yeah, I think, um, wow, so much there too. And I love Angela that you use the word grace around this. Like, I think that's something Lindsay and I have been talking with parents a lot about is this notion of giving yourself grace and, and that flexibility piece. So when I think about employers, um, one of the biggest things is exactly like Lindsay was saying, you know, you may be far removed from what these parents are going through right now. And so there have been many times we've tried in our writing and in these conversations, you know, to, to paint that picture of what it looks like for us as working moms who are resourced, have partners who we can trade responsibilities off with, um, 
you know, so for us, much of the time, it means I'm managing my kids remote learning for three different kids on three different devices, potentially. And this one's crying because he got kicked out and this one can't figure out his assignment. And, and so the emotional upheaval and chaos in our house that I'm trying to manage all day long in between doing emails and trying to do my work that at the end of the day is actually when I can finally sit down to do my work. And my work hours became like 9 p.m. to 2 a.m. But I'm so emotionally exhausted by then from this day, how productive am I able to be? And so just painting that picture for employers to understand that, you know, this is not parents trying to be lazy, trying to make excuses. Like we are having to do all of the things all day long for everyone. And that's exhausting. And so I think sometimes that helps people to then get like, okay, so I, that flexibility word you used, I think was just key that, you know, giving your staff the flexibility, here are your marching orders. Like here are the tasks I need you to do. This is how I'd prioritize them. But I know that you're going to get to those when you can. And so, you know, work with that and trust that your staff are going to be able to figure out what makes the most sense for them. I think that's been the frustration is a lot of companies are used to, you know, managing you are here for these hours like I just don't have that luxury when my kids also need me right now and I but I will get it done if you let me figure out the way that works the best within my system within my family and and one other thing I just wanted to highlight there was you know Lindsay and I have talked a lot in with parents about this uh, the concept of decision fatigue So that this is a lot of people aren't realizing, like, why am I having such a hard time just deciding what to make for dinner tonight? And it's because we've been having to make decisions all day long, especially in the beginning of the pandemic, but even now still right around, um, is it safe for us to go to the store? Is it okay for me to send my kids here? You know, what are the rules? Will there be social distancing? Like these decisions that actually feel pretty heavy and don't have easy answers because PS, this is our first pandemic. We've never done this before. And so, you know, we're making those decisions all day long. And so similarly for your work, you're triaging, like, what do I have to do first? What's more important? I'm not sure if my boss meant this or this, or do I respond to these emails or work on this project? Like that's exhausting. And we are not cognitively wired to be doing that at the levels we have had to, as Lindsay said now for the better part of a year and deal with all that uncertainty. So I think for managers to also recognize that this decision fatigue is real for all of us. And so while you're giving choice and flexibility also help your folks know like here's how i'd prioritize things so of this list of 10 things i gave you you know focus on these three first that's one less thing i have to triage myself and i think that can really help people with their productivity and managing their time in the chunks that they can be productive oh i was just going to add this flexibility issue i think is so key like i'm so glad you highlighted that because um it is such a big thing. And I think moving forward, like there's going to be a lot of places that are restructuring, they're rethinking their workplaces after this pandemic. I mean, we're already seeing it um, that, you know, universities are talking about like more remote work and, you know, maybe we don't need everyone to have their own individual office and we're going to do like, you know, a sharing office sharing system. But I think really thinking about the potential extra burdens that those things are going to put on parents um, if you don't have an office to go to. So, you know, there might be some benefits for some parents for working at home, but for others, it's, it's not a good situation. And like getting out of the house, getting to the office is where they can really be productive and not have those interruptions and not have those issues. And so just, yeah, choice and flexibility is key there too, as we envision 
like we've been doing this in an emergency situation because we have to, but whether this, this is really the best way going forward. And I think a lot of places want to save money by, well, let's just cut down the physical infrastructure. Um, but that could have a disproportionate impact on, on working parents, I think. That's right. So just something to think about. Yeah. And the takeaway there for me is like, don't make assumptions Ask, right? Don't assume it be, because you're thinking, oh, this will be better for parents. Well, if you're hearing yourself make those assumptions, this will be, but ask, because it may be very different circumstances for different members of your staff. Yeah, such a great point. And it makes me think about, um, so, you know, there, what I'm, I'm noticing is there's this like have and have nots um, um, conversation happening around work from home. And it's so interesting because it's, it's not the same for any one person. You know, you, you may be someone who's working in a plant or, uh, you know, in a lab or uh, something, and you're looking at people who are working from home and saying, oh my gosh, they have it so good. But then the parents are like, no, I just want to come in and be able to focus on my work. And so it just paints the picture of truly understanding your workforce, asking, Amanda, to your point, asking the question and creating spaces and scenarios that do present flexibility and choice. I keep, I keep saying choice because I think the organizations and the workplaces who are saying everybody works from home, they don't have it right. And then you have the people who are saying, everyone come back to work. They also don't have it right because they're not providing choice. They think they're providing flexibility, but they're, they're really not. Right, that's right, yeah. And, and I think a lot of parents, if you ask them, I'd, I'd love to be back in the office, but I, you know, we, don't, we don't have that option or I don't have childcare. My kids are still at home. So I, even if I would like to be, I can't. And mm -hmm. so I, th I think absolutely, yeah, just, just meeting people where they are, or at least trying to understand where they are rather than assuming this is gonna work for everyone. And understanding how you might end up, you know, inadvertently pushing a huge segment of your workforce out if you make these decisions, especially without them involved in those decisions. So that's a really good segue into an, another question here, which is uh, working women and working moms in particular. I know we're talking about parents um, and the research around the impact of parents, but um, with some of the research I've done in the uh, on the organizational psychology perspective, you know, we're finding unemployment rates. Women are opting out of the workforce, basically. And uh, obviously, I think one of the main reasons is because of the parenting situation and also the disparities between um, parenting responsibilities and, um, and also just out of pure need. It's either, you know, I either pay my life bill, take care of my kids or go to work. I mean, it's, it's, it's a horrible, horrible situation to be in. So I wanted to hear from both of you, maybe starting with you, Lindsay, on um, the impact to working moms specifically. Yeah, no, it's a great, um, well, it's not a great issue to be considering, but it's an important issue to be considering. Um, and I just read a headline the other day too, that was about the impact on black women in particular. So we have to think too, that not only is this pandemic disproportionately affecting women like in the workplace, but it seems like it's you know affecting like based on race, based on um, income and all sorts of other factors. So we really need to consider the intersection there. Um, you know, and I, 
I just know that I see one scary headline after another um, about, you know, women being kind of set back generations by this. And I never would have guessed, like, I mean, I don't think I even fully knew what a pandemic was a year ago. Like if you had asked me to define that word and to think that it could end up undoing so much progress um, in part because we have these gendered ideas about the workplace and about um, parenting responsibilities. Um, and so, you know, I mean, I'm very lucky that in my marriage, that's not how it works. And I arguably get more time to work and, you know, my husband takes care of more of the parenting responsibilities, but I feel um, for women who are not in that situation, um, who have to make those difficult choices, which I think are sort of more like a, like a Hobson's choice, right? It's not really like they're opting out of the workforce, like they're being pushed out of the workforce because we don't have policies in place that, and, and, you know, we have this webinar coming up where we're going to talk about women being pushed out. And one of our guests, Dr. Jessica Calarco has this amazing quote, which was, um, and I hope I get it right, but I'm going off of memory here. Um, but you know, other, other countries have social safety nets and the U S has women. And that just hit me so hard. Like, you know, so many of the things fall back, um, on, on women to, to kind of hold up and, you know, and, and I mean, so the situation is probably a little bit better in Canada where I am, um, which has a bit more of a social safety net, but still not perfect. I mean, it's still, you know, by any means there's, there's women dropping out of the workforce here too. So that's just, yeah, that, you know, the U S has women like, and that's just, yeah. I think I, I struggle too. I'm glad you brought that up. Like even when Angela said, you know, opting out, which is how it's being talked about, right? That women are opting out of the workforce. And for me, it's, I just think like, that's the wrong word. Like women have been faced with an impossible choice. It's not a choice. It's, and I have, even with all my privilege and all the resources and the flexibility of my job, there have been moments throughout this pandemic where I have been in tears and said, I can't do this anymore. I, I can't do all of the things. I can't be here in the way my kids need me to because they're falling apart and do my job, even in a mediocre bare minimum way. I am dropping balls left and right. I can't do this anymore. And I, you know, and then I've been able to get through that because of all of the layers of privilege I, I'm so grateful to have. And that's why I think for so many women, it is not a choice. I am not opting out. I literally can't. I, either somebody's here to watch my kids or I can do my job, or my job is such that I'm not able to do both. You know, I have to leave the house and that's not possible because my kids aren't in school right now. And so I think it, it isn't a choice in the way that it's often framed in the media. It's, it's, and part of the reason I think that happened at six months is because when it first started, right, as you both mentioned, right, it was this emergency situation. It was like, okay, we're gonna get the kids through the end of the school year and then we'll be in the summer and it'll be fine and I can hang in there and my job will let me hang in there for this period of time. But then we hit that six month point, the fall you know, semester started, kids were supposed to be back in school and this wasn't changing. And that's when I think a lot of women were faced with that conundrum of, we're staring down the barrel of another year of this and there's no way. I could hang in there for a few months before but, but this just isn't going to work. And so, um, and to see the rates and headlines, like Lindsay mentioned, of women being forced to leave the workforce because of various responsibilities, it really is concerning. And I appreciate you mentioning that, Amanda, about the opting out, because it, it, it just naturally slipped out of my, right. of that's my how we talk about it. That's how we've of been talking about it. And I, I love the fact that you've challenged that because 
it's it's completely you're you're absolutely correct it's you know you're not having a choice to say i've got these two choices i'm choosing this one it's it's pure survival mode at that point it's like the survival mode of yourself and your your children um and your family um and the livelihood um there is no choice <laughs> so there is no opt-out it is just right. a, a dire situation and I think, like, which I just think oh, comes down to to childcare. That's all. Like, that's why it's not a choice, right? Because it's if my kids can't go to school, there is no childcare, so I can't do my job, and I have to be the childcare. Like, I think that's what, like Lindsay was talking about with the social safety net too, is mm-hmm. which is blowing, you know, such a huge or putting such a huge spotlight on this as an issue, not only in America but in many other countries, uh, the need to focus on childcare policy. But sorry, Lindsay. Go yeah, ahead. no, and I I remember bringing up you know, I'm quite privileged in many ways. I have tenure. So I, I try to bring up these issues a lot in meetings and to just keep them at the forefront of people's minds. Um, but I remember very early on in the pandemic in a meeting saying, well, I'm going to have to see kind of how this goes, because if this continues on, like, I'm not going to be in a position as a parent of young kids to, you know, I forget what it, whatever the thing was, but, um, I said, you know, I'm not asking for like special treatment because I have kids because, you know, a lot of people say, well, being a parent is a choice. And yeah, that's true. Um, but one of my colleagues said, you know, childcare isn't, isn't like a privilege. It's a human right. Um, and so, you know, a lot of people who kind of, who I, you know, I see different comments about how people don't want to take care of their kids or people chose to be parents. So now they have to deal with it. It's like, well, we chose to be parents when, you know, schools existed <laughs> and daycares <laughs> existed and grandparents and other family members were around or if they weren't like, or you could hire a babysitter or you could, you know, there's just very different um, circumstances when a lot of people like decided to become parents. And so, uh, yeah, so that's something that I think about a lot, but, yeah. but childcare policy is is absolutely something that, um, and again, like if you look at, well, who's making the decisions about these things? Who's in charge of childcare policy? Are they people who have young kids themselves or who, you know, d- did at one point and they've forgotten? <laughs> like there's, um, you know, we need, we need like women at the table really helping to make these decisions. Yeah. Yeah. And even like the, I was just thinking as you were saying that too, the medical leave pieces of this, if I sort of think about from the employer's perspective, like I have many friends in the, and family members in the healthcare sector, and they were terrified of getting COVID because not because of their health, which is of course what we should be worried about or their family's health, but because then I'm going to be forced to be out of work for two weeks or longer. And what's that going to mean? And I don't have any more sick leave. And it was like, and you're the essential worker taking care of us. And this is the stressor you're feeling. And so I just think the childcare policy, but just also, as Lindsay mentioned, you know, many parents aren't just caring for their kids, they're caregivers for, you know, their own parents or other family members. And so, of course, our medical leave policies <laughs> need some work, you know, as, as we're faced literally in a situation where as somebody who got through COVID myself, you know, I was laid out for almost a month and thank God my job was flexible. And we were still trying to parent kids and still trying to manage, but, you know, not factoring in, you know, as employers either, like what actually happens when you get COVID. And now I'm trying to still do my job, still parent my kids through everything they're going through. And I feel awful. 
Yeah. And if you were paid, you know, if you were working in a job where you were paid by the hour, like you right. can see why people. So one of my colleagues at Brock University, um, Angela Evans, did a really cool study towards the beginning of the pandemic, looking at people's, she studies lie telling, and she was looking at people's deceptive behaviors around COVID-19 and finding that like a shocking number of people were lying about their symptoms, lying about their COVID status. Um but, you know, they're doing it because they need to survive or like they need their paycheck. Um, and so, you know, these are people, again, in an impossible situation. But there was a lot of that, you know, about uh, lying about their travel, lying about like their exposures because they didn't want to be told, well, you have to now quarantine for 14 days and you, you're not going to have any money for that time. Like most people cannot miss a paycheck, even one, right? Like most people live paycheck to paycheck. So it's really, you know, I know that maybe government wide, like, you know, it's, it's harder to change these policies, but individual companies can hopefully have more flexible policies and, and, and probably find that, well, I mean, you're the IO psychologist, right? So we'll probably find that their work, <laughs> their, their workers are happier and that, you know, they're more loyal and all of those kinds of things. If, if those policies do exist. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, the, the gap is narrowing here for companies, I think, to step up to the plate around their responsibility around their employees' lives outside of the workplace. You know, it's like, again, you you are, I, I'm, my philosophy around this work is, you know, employers have a responsibility to send happier humans home so that they can be better to their kids, to society, to communities, right? You're, you have these people um, eight hours a day or more and you're either creating really happy, fulfilled, purposeful humans, or you're creating stressed, sick human beings who are then taking that out into their societies and um, you know, to their, their children, to their families. And so there is such a, a grave responsibility here for employers to have to support. And uh, so what I'm hearing is I think employers, absolutely flexibility is really, really important and not putting parents in a position where they have to choose between safety, health, and work. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, that's just, and that, that seems like a basic human, <laughs> human right even, um, but you know, employers I think can do a much better job at providing that support and really understanding what kind of choices people are, are having to make day to day. If they're exposed to COVID and they're, you know, they're lying about you know, just so they can come in and get a paycheck, let's, let's clear that barrier for them. <laughs> let's not have them lie and put pe- other people at risk. Let's, let's give people time off. So if they are exposed, they can take time. Um, and so when you give like- them, yeah, give them some of that breathing room. Like, I just think, you know, we were talking just a minute ago about moms specifically, like there's nobody better at this than moms that when you tell them like, here's what's in front of you, here's what you have to figure out you know, these are the tasks to get done. You figure out the best way to do that. Like, that's what we do all day long with figuring out, okay, this kid needs his Valentine's. This one has, you know, crazy hat day at school. And this one, and meanwhile, I'm firing off this email to somebody at work. Like, this is what we do. I mean, one of the, my favorite quotes I saw on a sign was a worried mom does better research than the FBI. And it's like, if you give moms the latitude, they will be your best employees. If you just back off and let them figure out the way that that works for them within their system because right now we have no work-life separation so Mm -hmm. I love what you were saying Angela about like sending your employees home happier like 
I'm, I'm in it. I'm in all of it all the time, all day long. And so let me figure out the way that, that makes the most sense. And I will get it done for you. And I will get it done well if you give me the latitude to do that in my way. And, you know, this is sort of random, but thinking about how that lack of work-life separation has been really challenging in many ways, but also has been quite interesting to watch my kids, like, who never knew what I did before, right? Like now mommy has a meeting or I'm working on something. I get to talk to them more about my work and, and they know that I'm upstairs working and it's sort of this weird. So yesterday my daughter was reading a story, but she just kind of like tells the story as she's going. And it was, she kept repeating, well, and mommy has to work all day long. And I was dying inside. I felt so guilty that she was reading this story where the mommy had to work all day long, even though at the time she had a snow day and I was with her. So (laughs) clearly I wasn't. Um, But then I said, well, why does the mommy in the story have to work all day long. And she said, because she loves her work. And I thought like, Uh. wow, like that's not what I expected her to say. You know, I thought she'd say because she has to make money or whatever, but just the fact that she now thinks that, that I love what I do and I do, right? Even though it's challenging, of course, but I just thought that was so, you know, that's something that wouldn't have happened without the situation. I mean, I'm not saying that's worth this whole year of a pandemic or anything, but um, it just made, when you said the thing about, you know, you can have your workers be, be happy and like take that elsewhere. And that's just a prime example, I think, of how I've seen that. Yeah. Come through. I, I love that example. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah. I think about how much more my kids too have had exposure, like even with our pandemic parenting stuff, right? You know, I'll hear my tween sort of like, oh, do you have another webinar tonight? Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, but he, but then he'll say, oh, this is the one for parents. Right. And it's like, even in his angst and eye rolling, like what he knows is what I'm trying to do is help other parents. And, and so the lessons and things that he's learning in that, or times that they've gotten, you know, to bust into my class, you know, and, and say hi to my students and have my students get to know them. Like that wouldn't happen if I was going to campus. And mm-hmm. so, um, yeah, and I, I think about there, what there we're really showing some lessons. Yeah. What we're mm-hmm. showing to students too, right? Like my, my kids would interrupt when I was teaching my grad students or teaching my undergraduate students. And it's like, hopefully we're modeling for them, you know, because I, I think in many, you know, areas of work that a lot of women are always concerned about, like, well, how would I have a child and how would this factor in? Like, you do hear that a lot more from, from women than from men, but it's like, well, now you're seeing an example of somebody doing it and, you know, not apologizing for it. Um, so it's just, yeah. So I think that's a positive thing too. Yeah, all these all these little silver linings, I think, are really. Um, I'm sure it's a part of a lot of your like resilience um, research around this and the resilience of parents, which is there are silver line linings. There's a lot of there's a lot of crappy linings <laughs> to to this whole situation, <laughs> but there are some silver linings. And I think one of them is also how we're, how employers are going to think about. Um, uh, parents in the workplace. And, and again, the, the word grace comes to mind in that, you know, it's now acceptable, you know, if your kid jumps into a, a meeting, even if it's a super formal executive meeting, everyone just kind of smiles and goes with it. And I'm, I'm seeing that change in behavior uh, within the workplace. And I think that's a great silver lining. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. yeah I, I think there's some, there's some good things that have come, come of this too, even if they're small. <laughs> <laughs> 
And I wanted to, because um, I can talk about this all day and I want to be, um, I want to make sure that you all are able to tell our listeners about your upcoming webinar, uh, because that is just one of many resources that you all provide. So uh, maybe Amanda, can you tell us a little bit more about the, the upcoming webinar on February 25th, correct? That's right. So sure, Thursday, February 25th at 9 p.m. Eastern. So we intentionally do these webinars late in the evening in the hopes that, you know, we're not interfering with bedtime and dinner time chaos in homes because we we get it. We're there right, right there with you. So um, so it's called Push to the Limit, how the pandemic is impacting working moms. And we'll be featuring Dr. Jessica Calarco, which um, we mentioned earlier, and Dr. Amy Knopf, who've been doing some really fascinating research specifically on working moms and various aspects of the pandemic and how it's impacting uh, this on many levels. You can register at www.pandemic-parent.org. And it's free. And even if you can't join, you're welcome to register. We'll send you the recording afterward. Uh, we always post all of these resources on our website and our various social media channels. So we encourage you to join us. It'll be a really interesting conversation, I think, with some um, you know, very helpful tips that will come out of it along the lines of what we've been talking about here today. So please join us. Awesome. Lindsay, anything else from you before we kind of close out and say, say goodbye? Oh, I think I, I gave my best bit with my story from yesterday and the, <laughs> yeah, the three-year-old home for the snow day. No, I just, I, I really hope that, um, that we can have, you know, ensure that parents' voices are heard throughout this process. And as we're thinking about the right now, but also as we're envisioning, you know, the post-pandemic workplace that we consider all of these different angles and all of these other responsibilities that have been pushed to the forefront during this time. So yeah, thank you very much for having us. Yeah, thank you. I, I just wanna uh, thank you both for sharing your personal experiences. Um, one of the things that, uh, one of the reasons why I reached out to both of you is because I, I am not a parent. And um, I'm in this position where, where I'm talking to executives and leaders and um, I, I see the research, I hear the research, but um, this was such an important learning process for me too, because now I'm more informed about how I can better help these uh, organizations with uh, shaping uh, this experience for parents moving forward. So I just wanna thank you both for sharing your personal experiences, but also all of the fantastic work you're doing around pandemic parenting. Thank you so much. Thank you for Thank having you. us. Yeah.